Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4 again. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to finish up a two-part series we have been looking at on Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. And we're calling it, Watch Your Words. Watch Your Words. Let me read these two verses for us just to remind us of the potency of God's Word in these two small verses. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not Grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm going to begin by asking a pretty simple question that I'd like you to answer in your heart. Don't answer it out loud. What is theology? What is theology? It's a term that everyone's familiar with. What is it? Can you define theology? Without getting technical, let me say this. Your theology is any thought you have about God, whether it is true or not. Any thought you have about God, whether it is true or not, that's theology. That tells us you can have good theology or bad theology, accurate theology or inaccurate theology, precise or sloppy theology, but everyone has Theology. Everyone has an image of God in their mind that's either accurate and moving more accurate as we grow, or it's drifting, it's mission drift from our task of understanding and knowing God. What you think of God and what you think about God determines what you think of yourself, what you think of sin, ultimately what you believe about salvation. In other words, your theology quite literally determines your eternity. R.C. Sproul wrote, It's not a question of whether we're going to engage in theology. It is a question of whether our theology is sound or unsound. It's important to study and learn because God has taken great pains to reveal himself to his people, end quote. It's crucial then, it's critical to have a correct and a precise understanding of who God is and what God is like. Parents, you have no greater legacy than teaching your kids about God, who he is, what he's like, how different he is than us. Of all things in life to get right, your view of God is your highest priority with the greatest implications. The great goal then of every believer is to live life in response to God. The great goal of life is to live life in response to God. That's the thrust of Ephesians 4.30 that we'll be looking at closely in just a few minutes. The great temptation that we all share, the great temptation that we all face, day in and day out, hour by hour, 
is to reduce our faith to, to a code of ethics, a way of living, a social alternative to the world, rather than our faith being in the true resurrected living Jesus Christ, rather than our faith believe, be believing in the one true and revealed God in his holy word. You should know that your pastors and elders are ever aware of the danger about which Paul foresaw in his letter to Timothy, who, by the way, was pastoring the church of Ephesus when he received this letter. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul wrote, For the time will come when they, the sheep, will not endure, will not put up with sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, well, accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I don't think anyone would question that we are living in the day that Paul foresaw. Time when people don't endure sound doctrine. Listen, let me give you an, an incredible compliment. There are not many people who would voluntarily on a Sunday morning when everyone wants to take the day off and enjoy the weather and sleep in, who would come and listen to someone lecture or talk about a passage of the Bible for the better part of an hour. I want to encourage you. You, you faithful sheep of Mission Road have taught me so much about what it means to sit under and endure and even require, can I say that, sound doctrine. I very much recognize that if I got up here and I'm shoddy or sloppy in my preparation, our high schoolers know it. I'm so thankful for this accountability. So this is not just a prophecy about general sound doctrine, but sound doctrine mostly about God himself. The core of all sound doctrine is theology proper or a right view, a right understanding of the nature of God and listen, folks, we are to commit ourselves to being lifetime students of God's nature, of God's being, of knowing him better and knowing him more. So it's to God, the Holy Spirit, whom Paul now turns as the ultimate motivation for sanctification, for our growth and holiness. We've been talking since early in chapter 4, and especially uh, beginning in verses 25 and following, about Paul's admonition to stop doing things and start doing things, to put off certain things, to put on certain things. This is the, the paradigm. It's the structure for Christian growth. It's how to change. With sweet relational comfort. Our growth in faith is encouraged by Paul to turn to look at the Holy Spirit himself. Now, we began looking at this passage last week and only made it through the first two points, which are in verse 29. And we're going to look more intently at verse 30. First, we got to review where we were so we have some context. We broke this passage down, these two verses, as looking at three directions for granting grace with your words. Three directions for granting grace with your words. You say, well, why is it granting grace with your words? Look at the end of verse 29. So that, which is a henna clause in the Greek, it means purpose. 
so that it, your speech, will give grace to those who hear. So he gives us the purpose for this admonition so that you'll be an envoy, a messenger, a delivery system for grace, of grace, for grace. Three directions for granting grace with your words. The first is the negative side. Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Again, as I said, verse 25 launches Paul into the most penetratingly practical section of the letter. He basically says, stop doing these things and start doing these other things. Change. Don't stay the same. Jesus Christ is far too powerful, far too amazing, far too awesome to invade a person's life without there being a massive radical change. He outlines that change. This is how we are to walk no longer as unbelievers, as the Gentiles, which he said in verse 20, excuse me, verse 17. And he gives an outline. He says in verse 25, and we, we kind of broke it down each of these into a sermon. Verse 25, tell the truth. Be a man or a woman of integrity. Verses 26 and 27, temper your anger. Understand what you're to have righteous anger about and understand what is sinful anger. Verse 28, work to share. Have a good work ethic and be generous because of it. We're in the middle of this admonition. Watch your words. And then next week, we'll look at refashion your relationships in verses 31 and 32. Tell the truth, temper your anger, work to share, watch your words, refashion your relationships. This is a bang, bang, staccato, rapid fire outline for how to change and be sanctified or be holy. So let's look at this first little injunction in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. First thing you need to understand is the word no. Zero tolerance. Let none this is not do better. This is absolutely stop letting any unwholesome word come from your mouth. Solomon said in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The words that you and I utter are the most powerful thing about us. Think about that. What you say is the most powerful, yields the most influence of anything about you. It's not your physical strength. It's not your financial wealth. It's not your occupational position. It's certainly not your personality. Death and life are in the power of what you say. You can and have and will change someone's life by what you say. I shared with you last week that when I was in fourth grade, Someone said something to me that hurt and wounded me so deeply that if I think about it at this moment, it'll bring tears to my eyes. That was the fourth grade, and it's still there. It is such a lie that you were taught, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've broken bones, and I've had stitches and had contusions and concussions. They're gone. The words that people have spoke have stuck. On the flip side, as we'll see in a second, I had a high school wrestling coach who pulled me aside and gave me a specific conversation of encouragement. I'm convinced, looking back, that the course of my life completely changed that afternoon 
when he spoke to me. There is power in what you say. The word translated here in the New American Standard, unwholesome, or in the ESV, corrupting talk, is sapros. We studied that last week. You're, just, you're smiling. Such a, such a bad word, sapros. It's used metaphorically here, but, but, but it means fish or fruit or other products that are spoiled, rotten, putrefying, literally liquefying with rot. That's the word. Let no words that are like that come out of your mouth. You say, well, I don't speak words like that. No, no, no. Anything that's discouraging is that. That's Paul's point. He uses it metaphorically here, attaching it to unwholesome or foul speech. And we talked about just a list of the, the poison, the putrefying influence of our words, of our tongues. I, I gave you a quick list and let me just remind you of that. It could be things like gossip, saying something behind a person's back you would never say to their face, or flattery, saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Exaggeration, overstating or understating things for your own gain, stretching the truth, criticism. Basically, that is in James, book of James, criticism is elevating yourself to the person of God because you're judging, God, you're judging God's created people who are made in his image. Criticism is serious. Complaining. That's the sin of the tongue against God himself. Complaining confesses a dissatisfaction with God's plans and God's provisions in our lives. Cussing, cursing, and swearing. I told you, I don't even know what to call it anymore. I've, I heard, hear all three used. Using bad words, obscenities, expletives, dirty words, profanities, four-letter words. We'll come back to that, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 4. So just put a placeholder in your mind for that. Lying, according to John 8, 44, it's a scary revelation that includes the reality that if you lie, you're like your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Lying is serious. And then we said so much of what we say and do in social media today could encompass all of these sins of the tongue. Everything you post, every comment you make in social media, God takes as seriously as if you said it with your own lips. I love the comprehensive nature of this. Let no spoiled words, no foul words come out of your mouth. A zero tolerance policy. As we said, listen, the things that you say have energy. The things that you say have power. The things that you say have ability to impact a person's life. Life and death really are in the power of the tongue. Words do far more than communicate information. They touch the lives of others in deep ways, profound ways, and in lasting, unerasable ways. What you say can wound or heal, build up or tear down, honor someone or humiliate them. You can quite literally grant words of life or words of death. James said it this way, James 3, 2. We all stumble, we all sin in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a mature, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. You control your tongue, you control all of you. And Jesus went a step further than that. 
Words are so important that we're going to give an account of everything we say when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 33, Jesus says, make the tree good. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Then he says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which that which fills the heart. The King James is so wonderful. For the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then at the end of that paragraph, Jesus says, by your words, well, let me read what he says before that. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you, every careless word that a man shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. How about that? Every single word we will render account for. And then he says, for by your words you shall be saved or justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Does that mean that work salvation, I say enough to go to heaven, I don't say enough, I, I won't go, or I can set, talk myself into hell. No, no. He's saying that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know if you're on the pathway to heaven or the pathway to hell, just listen to what you say. That's what he's saying. Your heart is revealed by your words. So refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Parents, what a what a kicker that is to us in how we talk to our kids. It doesn't mean you don't correct. It doesn't mean you don't say negative things about negative things that need correction, confrontation, but it's how you say it. It's why you say it. First direction for granting grace with your words is to refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words on the other side. That's put off on the put on side. Commit to speak gracious, encouraging words. Just the exact opposite. There's two words that are the comprehensive words in this text that are interesting. Let zero, no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Zero tolerance. Then on the other side, but only, only such a word as is good for edification. You see the extensive, comprehensive nature of that? Zero tolerance for discouraging words. Only, only speak what's building up and what's encouraging. Only, only such a word, literally only such as is good for building up, for edification, according to the need present, the need before you, the need of the moment, so that it will give grace, grant grace to those who hear. The commitment to speak good is good for edification, good edifying words. It's a, it's a construction word. It means building up words. Words that build up, they don't tear down. They're constructive, not destructive. They're building up, not demolition. Paul implies that we are to be ever aware of our words and that our words are doing something every time we say them. They're doing something in the ears and in the lives of those who hear us. Look at this little command broken down. It's good for edification. Build them up. It's encouraging. 
positive, constructive ideas conveyed by words according to the need of the moment, what is necessary and what is needful, which is so very easily governed if we'll stop before we say whatever we're going to say and say, should I say it? Does this need to be said right here, right now to this person? Is, does the need of the moment require that I speak what I'm speaking? Learn to ask, is this the best thing to say and the right time to say it? That's the need of the moment. And then he says, so that it will give grace to the hearer. The purpose of everything we say in the ears of anyone else is to grant grace. And again, correcting can grant grace. Rebuke can grant grace. But it has to grant grace. Our words are to be delivery systems of grace. God's unmerited, gracious kindness, loving, kind favor. Well, that was review. Now we come to the third directive, which is the heart of our time in God's word today. Three directives for directions for granting grace with your words. Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Commit to speak gracious, encouraging words. And number three, beware of speaking saddening, consequential words. Saddening, consequential words. Now, before we dive into this, the verse directly, it's important to understand the object of this point, object of the two words in this point, saddening and consequential. Beware of speaking words that sadden and words that have consequences. In question here is who is saddened and who is affected consequentially by our unwise sinful words? Now, you might be tempted to say, well, everyone who hears them who I sin against, and you would be partially right but there's something more important here. Listen freshly to verse 30. Do not, you can supply, do not with, with what you say by your words, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, there's a lot we have to unpack here. Let, let me first say that this is one of the more controversial passages for theologians of the Bible, and it's also come to the surface in many debates in our day in academic circles, which means that eventually it's going to work its way into the pews through books and popular writings. And that is the, the idea of a theological notion called divine impassibility. Divine impassibility. The thought behind divine impassibility is this. God does not feel pain, nor does God have emotions. Now, you should know that one of the things that makes divine impassibility such a difficult theological concept to discuss and, and talk about is that it's defined differently by different people. So not everyone even has the same rules in talking about this divine concept. So let's break it down. The word impassibility is interesting. It's not that difficult. We all heard of the passion of the Christ. Passio, from the, from the Latin that means to suffer or strong emotion. So impassibility means that God does not suffer and God does not have strong emotions. Here's the challenge. If God is immutable, which means he does not Change, good, very good. If God is immutable, he does not change, 
then he does not experience pain or sorrow and cannot change his mind, therefore does not have emotions. That's how the radical impassibilists think. The thinking is that if God changed or expressed any emotion, he would be improving or worsening his own condition, which would implicate his perfection. See how that goes? Stick with me for a minute. That sounds logically plausible. But does that kind of thinking stand the test of exegetical observation? Does the Bible teach that? Here's my question, and I'll ask it a few ways. If God has no emotions, but the Bible says that he is angry, or he is joyful, or he is pleased, or he is grieved, if it doesn't really mean that, then what does it mean? What is being communicated by God in his word if it doesn't mean that? This completely gets around the central question, which is this. If these are anthropomorphisms, you know what that is? It's, Calvin said it's God's way of speaking baby language to us so that we can understand. He speaks very simply so we can understand in very simple ways. So he uses our understanding of men to communicate something about him that they say is not true. You following that? If these anthropomorphisms are communicating something about God that's not truly what it says, then what does it mean? The question here is, many would say, well, I know it says do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can't really be grieved. Well, okay, then what does that mean? What does it mean then? If it doesn't mean what it says, give me option B. What is alternative B? What do we make here then of Paul's command not to grieve the Holy Spirit? Can the Spirit of God be grieved? First of all, let me say that what you determine about this and believe about this reveals your conviction about Scripture's clarity. It's, what's the big word? Perspicuity. Oh, this is so good. Perspicuity. Scripture must be taken at face value. And this does not preclude the use of analogies and figurative language. God does not have a speech impediment. He's very clear and very capable. He invented language. You'd think he would know how to communicate. And he does. Let me try to help our understanding of impassibility, which I appreciate the heart of that. You don't want to see that God is manipulatable or movable by our by, uh, emotions. And So how do we make sense of this? Well, Let's say it this way. God does not have passions or emotions that bear human limitations, human deficiencies like our emotions. Said another way, God's emotions are not like yours and mine. They're perfected. They're all holy. Is it fair to say that not many of our emotions in and of themselves stand the test of the holiness test? So when you're reading the scripture that God is angry, that God is grievous, or that God repents, these are different experiences than humans have. 
all of God's affections, all of God's passions, all of God's emotions as expressed in scriptures are perfect and holy. Rob Lister writes it like this. He says this, God is neither surprised by the events of history nor provoked involuntarily into some form of unanticipated reaction. That's really helpful. Most of our emotions are reflexes. God doesn't reflex like us. All of his emotions are a part of his being and perfect and just and right and holy. So you need to be very careful dismissing the meaning of biblical figures of speech. Yes, there are anthropomorphisms and also what we call anthropopathisms, which is expressions of emotion that are human. But these words do mean something. Can we take a quick tour? You have a Bible. You've read these passages. Just listen to what the Word of God says about the God of the Word. Psalm 78, 40. How often they rebelled against Him, God, in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. If it doesn't mean that it grieved Him, what, what does it mean? Deuteronomy one thirty four. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath. Again, related to what we're looking at in just a minute, our words can have a response from God. Deuteronomy one thirty seven about Moses. The Lord was angry with me on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter into the promised land. The Lord was angry with me. 1 Kings 3.10, it was pleasing. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked him this thing. God can be pleased. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult, rejoice over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And there are some who would say, well, I know it says that, but that's not really what God means by what he says. Judges 2, 18. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the land, hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. The Lord was moved with pity. And then a critical text in Hosea 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. This is God talking. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You know what he's saying? My anger is, is my anger. I'm not a man. I don't exercise my emotions, my affections like, like men do. They're different than us. We have to grant that they're different than us. These passages and 
countless others point to the fact that God is not inert and unfeeling. He's not a frozen statue in heaven. He's not an iceberg. So if we understand God's impassibility rightly, we should not conclude that God is unfeeling. But we understand that His feelings are different than ours because they're holy and perfect and right. Phil Johnson is helpful here. He says, God's emotions don't come and go or change and fluctuate. They are active, sovereignly directed dispositions rather than passive reactions to external stimuli. Remember that reflex we were talking about? They differ in this way from human passions. Furthermore, God's hatred and His love, His pleasure and His grief over sin are as fixed and immutable as any other aspect of divine character. If God appears to change moods in the biblical narrative or in the outworking of His providence, it is only because for from time to time in his dealings with people, he brings these various dispositions more or less to the forefront, showing us all these aspects of his character. But his love is never overwhelmed by his wrath, nor vice versa. In fact, there's never really any change in him at all, end quote. I think it's helpful, but I have a confession for you. I don't really understand this doctrine as, as I'd like to. You know why? Because of the mystery of the incarnation. God doesn't change, right? But he took on human flesh. God doesn't suffer, right? But he suffered in the garden and on the cross. God can't die, but God in flesh died on the cross. You say, how does that work out? I don't know. I don't know. It's a wonderful mystery. So many theological errors are made when we try to iron out wrinkles in theology, and then after ironing and ironing and ironing, we look, and it's a sewn-in seam and not a wrinkle at all. It's okay to say, okay, God is impassible and also has passions, impassioned. That's what Rob List, the name of Rob Lister's book is, which I would recommend to you. God is impassible and impassioned toward a theology of God's emotions. So back to what the verse says. I think we should take it at face value and believe what it says. To grieve the Holy Spirit simply means taking the Holy, making the Holy Spirit sad. It means making the Holy Spirit sad. That's what grief means. Paul says, don't do it, which means it could be done. Wouldn't it be great if you, Paul said, do not grieve the Holy, Holy Spirit. You said, oh, contrary, he can't be grieved, so I don't have to worry about that. Of course not. It means something. Paul is obviously referencing Isaiah 63.10, which chronicles the Israelites grieving the Holy Spirit by their rebellion in the wilderness. And by the way, their rebellion in the wilderness, the rejection that led to turning away from God and God turning away from them was because of their words, what they said. Isaiah 63.10, they rebelled 
and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. So Paul understood that, Paul knew that. And so when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he had a reference in mind that this has happened before. Something else important here. The text points to the personal nature of the Spirit of God. The, please help your own vocabulary. I know that we can all make slips. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He's a he, not a force. He's powerful, but he is a person of the Trinity, which means he can take offenses personally. The Holy Spirit, God, for that matter, is not an abstract moral principle. He can be personally grieved. He can be quenched in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Emotions are a part of God's personality, but they are perfective emotions very unlike our own. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Paul says, don't do it. How would we do it? by our words. That's the context. That's what it's given. That's the writer. That's the footnote right after the admonition to put off bad speak and put on positive. Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger write, it is far easier to dismiss our sins when God is viewed as a transcendent and distant but the spirit within us is personal. He is God. He is present with us. And our sin grieves him. Let's come full circle with the text. The one very sure way to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to how formal that statement is. We've already met the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now it's the Holy Spirit of God. The one very sure way to grieve him is corrupt speech. It's not being careful with our lips. My guess, and it's a very educated guess, I'm pretty certain that the worst hurts in your life all can be traced back to something someone said to you or about you. You grieve the Spirit of God when you do that. And folks, it might mean a phone call this week to someone to say, I'm sorry for what I said to you. How do we pull this together and make sense of it? Well, we pull it together and make sense by the last phrase. The Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Interesting phrase. We studied this back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a pledge, as a seal, as a promissory note, literally, we would even say like an engagement ring. It's a pledge of a promise made that has a future fulfillment. I once heard an illustration that may serve us well here, but it is imperfect, and you can't press every detail, okay? Think of an engaged couple, a couple that love each other, they're engaged to be married. They love each other with a love that's obvious, it's pronounced, it's real, it's wonderful. She's wearing his ring. 
He carries a thousand pictures of her in his phone. It's a sweet couple. Comes a day, though, when the guy asks his fiancée about going out on a date that night. Instead of the usual delight in making plans and figuring out what they were going to do next, she informs him that she can't go because she already has plans. What are these plans, he says? What are you doing tonight? She then lets him know that she's going out that evening with her old boyfriend. In fact, they've organized a dinner at her favorite restaurant. Afterwards, they're going over to his house to watch a movie that's the favorite movie of the engaged couple. How does that guy feel? Silly, but how would he feel? Hurt? Disappointed? Betrayed? How about this? Grieved. He'd be grieved. Certainly not a perfect or an adequate illustration, but it gets the idea at the idea of what Paul is communicating. You're already owned. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, the great day of glorification, when our faith will be sight. And because we've been sealed for that great day for heaven, our wedding day with the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are to remain faithful to the presence of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and is with us and is, is able to be grieved by our actions now. And Paul is letting us know that our faithfulness to the Spirit of God is demonstrated perhaps most through how we use our words. Wow. Harold Honer says, Paul states that believers are accountable for what they say. In fact, every word is accountable. Care must be taken that each word is not useless or unprofitable, but is beneficial for the building up of the body, end quote. Sounds negative, doesn't it? Isn't it frightful and fearful? There's a flip side of that coin that Paul is going to get to in just a few verses. Look down at Ephesians 5, verse 8. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, right? But look at this. This is so encouraging. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Look at this trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Yes, he may be grieved, but he can be pleased. Is that not amazing? You can please God Almighty. Just like you can grieve him, you can please him. Isn't that our goal? What do we want to hear when we die? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy, joy of your master. Wow, sounds emotional to me. The Holy Spirit can be pleased and he can be grieved. 
So a couple of practical suggestions, can I? Just a couple of takeaways. First of all, just like last week, train yourself to ask, why am I about to say what I'm about to say? Why am I saying this? Train yourself to ask, why am I, why am I about to say this? Is it encouraging, uplifting? Is it discouraging? Is it poisonous? Is it putrefied? Is it hurtful? Number two, grow in love for the things that God loves. Grow in love for the things that God loves. And in hatred for the things that God hates, because he does love and he does hate. Grow in love for the things that God loves. Grow in hatred for the things that God hates. And if you want to know what those are, you have a Bible you can read and it will be revealed to you every time you open it. And number three, and I have to say this because in the last week as we studied verse 29 last week, I think if you're like me, we have all carried around the burden of wounding people with words. But number three, receive and enjoy the grace of God that covers any and every sin through the gospel. Receive and enjoy the grace of God that covers any and every sin through the gospel. This can be such a condemning text. Don't speak discouraging words. Who of us have not done that? Speak encouraging words. Who of us have done that enough? Answer, only Jesus. So belief in Christ is what gives us his righteousness where he takes our sin on the cross and forgives us and gives us a new start. What a God. What a grace. A Christian doesn't swim in condemnation. A Christian bathes in God's grace. The psalmist said, Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Will you pray that prayer? Because <laughs> God might just answer that. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141, verse 3. Well, next week, it even goes layers deeper than that. We'll study, let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Our put off and put on impacts our relationships in significant ways.